Good morning. As we open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, let me remind you about next week, which is our members meeting, but it's a little bit of a weird Sunday. The Frank family wedding is going to be that morning at 9.15. We're going to show up and support them uh, in their obedience to the gospel. Amen. But then we're going to go right from a wedding to a church service to a potluck, which everyone's invited to, by the way, members, whatever. Uh, but if you're going to come to the potluck, don't be that guy. Don't, don't try to like jet out of here after service, run down to Walmart, get like some potato salad, and then rush back, right? Just plan accordingly. Wives, I'm looking at you. Help me with this. Plan accordingly. Make sure that you bring food to the potluck the next day. If you're a visitor and you're asking, do I need to bring food to the potluck? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't want to have to run down to Little Caesars again because it looks like we don't have enough food for the potluck. So everyone brings some food. Okay. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I'm going to read the text aloud. Follow along with me in your own Bibles. The Lord, speaking through the Apostle Paul, writes these words, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and invaluable word. Amen? Amen. So what makes a good teacher? Is it a highly developed skill set in a particular field? Not necessarily. An athlete, for example, may possess a highly refined skill set in his particular sport, but may have no idea how to explain what he's doing. He may not know how to teach it to anyone else, though he may be better at doing it than anyone else in the world. What about more knowledge? Does does more knowledge always translate into better teaching? Well, the answer, of course, has to be no, not necessarily. There are a lot of really smart people out there who have no idea how to get the information that's in their head into your head using this thing called language. What about a certificate or a degree or a certification? Does that make someone a good teacher? I think the answer has to be no, right? We've all had teachers that were certified to teach. They've got the degree. They've got the paper. And yet they are bad. (laughs) 
at the end of the day, being a, a really good teacher, it's a multifaceted skill set, and it requires a bunch of different things. You have to be a strong communicator. You have to be a good listener. You have to be adaptable, engaging, creative, relatable, empathetic, patient. But there's one thing that all really, truly great teachers have in common, and it's this. They're always teaching. It's just in their blood. The whole world is their classroom, and every moment in their life is a potentially teachable moment. And we can see this impulse of a great teacher in the Apostle Paul as he writes this morning's text. On the surface of things, it seems like Paul is just conveying some logistical information to the Philippian church. He's like, hey, I'm going to send Timothy to get, to get the rundown from you here in a little bit. And, and then, oh, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you because he's been sick and I know you've been worried and he's wanted to see you and I've been anxious. But there's more going on here than just travel information. What Paul is doing is he's turning this travel information into a teachable moment for the Philippians. Ever since chapter 1, Paul has been beating the same theme in his letter. And the drumbeat of this letter has been this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then Paul has been teaching us, what does it look like to live a life that's worthy of the gospel? A life worthy of the gospel is a humble life. It's a life unified with the body of Christ. It's a life given over to sacrificial service. It's the obedient life. And then here in this morning's text, Paul holds up Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of that kind of life. And he says, follow them. Without getting into the full biography of Timothy and Epaphroditus, here's what we know about them from this morning's text. Timothy is Paul's beloved son. You can see that in verse 22. And Epaphroditus is in verse 25, Paul's brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. That's quite the resume. Timothy is willing to give away his life in service, where it seems like Epaphroditus is willing to risk his life even to the point of death in service. Timothy is going to Philippi, and Epaphroditus is returning to Philippi. But here's where this really matters for us this morning. In Philippians chapter 3, just go ahead and flip over there in your Bible. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Who's the us? It's Paul. It's Timothy. It's Epaphroditus. There's another guy I mentioned later in the book, Clement, probably him too. But what Paul is saying is like, listen, we are holding up an example to you of what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully so that you can follow us. And so this morning, together as a church, we say, yes, Lord, we will follow the example of these men that you have given us in Scripture. So here's how I'm going to approach this morning's sermon. We're going to examine these exemplary men 
to see what it is about their life and ministry that is so exemplary, that is so worthy of our imitation. And then we're going to take those characteristics that we observe in their life and ministry, and we're going to see how we can possibly apply those to our own context. So I have 10 points for you this morning. Uh, Yay! Uh, five points, each, the first five points are uh, characteristics of a life worthy of imitation, and then I have five application points at the end. I'm going to do my best to give them to you as we go. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we, we pray to you a lot in these services, and it is not without cause. We need a lot of help. Lord Jesus, your Holy Spirit has inspired the words that we are going to study together this morning. And your Holy Spirit has given us new hearts that are capable of receiving this instruction. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this truth to our lives and help us to be more like Epaphroditus, more like Timothy, more like Paul, and ultimately more like your son Jesus. Help us to be imitators of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, selfless. We should follow the example of those who are selfless in their service. I've used this example before, but I'll use it again because it's a really good example and I don't have that many examples. Parents, our greatest joy in parenting is when we sacrifice to bring joy to our children. Kids, you'll understand this when you get older. You probably don't, you can't even really begin to comprehend what makes mom and dad really happy. But as parents, you understand that on some level, you can be satisfied as a parent by being selfish, right? Don't talk to me right now, I'm exhausted. That, that can be satisfying to have a moment of peace. What I'm talking about is the deepest, most lasting sense of joy that you can experience as a parent is when you sacrifice something in order to bring joy to your children. The same thing is true in almost every area of life. This principle is fairly universal. Consider the marriage bed. Our greatest pleasure in the marriage bed is not found in selfishly seeking our own satisfaction, but in seeking the joy and the pleasure of the other. You think about in the ministry right? When are your pastors and deacons the happiest? It's when we are able to sacrifice ourselves to serve you and see you happy in Jesus. Where do we get this from? Well, Jesus says that his own service to us is all about fundamentally bringing us into joy. Jude chapter 1 verse 24 says it like this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling which would not be joyful, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That's what he's doing. He's trying to bring you out of sin and into his presence where there is joy forevermore. The psalmist looking forward to Christ and the salvation that he would give us says that Jesus saved us in order to fill us with the joy of God's presence. That's in Acts chapter 2, quoting the psalmist. Jesus says that on the last day, all those who know him will hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
the Apostle Paul, when considering which path to choose for his own ministry, he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, because you know what? That's far better. Or, do that, or remain in this body of death and this ministry of suffering. Here's how he reasons his way through those two options. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. The thing that brings Paul the most joy is sacrificing his own comfort so that he can serve the joy of the church. Are you seeing the pattern here? Now, you may be thinking, Sean, uh, the title you gave for this point, the first point, is selfless. And thus far, all you're talking about is joy. Why are you only talking about joy? What does it have to do with being selfless? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. In verse 20 of this morning's text, Paul says that Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. This is the main thing that Paul says to the Philippians to commend Timothy's service to them. He could have said a hundred other things. He could have said, Timothy's a great teacher. He's got a million dollar smile. He's been discipled under me. He doesn't say that. He says he's genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, how can that be? I mean, do you know other human beings? Are human beings, by and large, genuinely, consistently, faithfully concerned for the welfare of other people to the extent that they neglect their own welfare? No. Human beings are fundamentally selfish. That's what sin does to us. Augustine says sin causes us to curve in on ourselves. Selfish, not selfless. We are not self, uh, excuse me, we are not other interested primarily, we are self-interested. When you think about the times when, when people tend to serve, it's usually when they feel like they have enough left over to give away, right? I'll give to the church if I got enough money, right? I'll, I'll have some time to spend with you if I have enough time to spare. I might have a, a time of of encouragement with you or even exhortation and rebuke if I feel like I have the emotional bandwidth to give you something of myself. And if I don't, you might not get it. Me first. And then if I have something left over, then you get something. This is why, by the way, capitalism works so well. It's the best of all bad systems in this fallen world. Capitalism takes into account the fundamentally selfish nature of human beings. Socialism, on the other hand, assumes the perfectibility of man. It wrongly believes that human beings can en masse rise above their own selfish impulses and desires for the good of others. And that's why it's failed over and over and over again. And yet Timothy seems to be able to do this. He seems to be able to look past his own self-interest and to care more about other people than himself to the extent that Paul can say, this is the reason why I commend him to you. How is that possible? How can we be truly selfish? Uh, excuse me, selfless? Well, we can only do it when we come to see that our greatest joy, which is the thing that we will always seek, 
It's unavoidable. If you say, Sean, no, 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 I'm not going to seek my own joy. I'm going to seek the joy of someone else. No, you, you've misunderstood the way God has built your soul. He's created you to seek joy. So here's what you need to know as a Christian. You'll find your greatest joy when you selflessly serve other people and help them have joy. The parent has no greater joy than to see their child happy. The spouse has no greater pleasure than to see his beloved satisfied. The teacher has no greater satisfaction than to see her student succeed. And the true servants of Jesus Christ and his gospel have no greater joy than to see the saints of God made happy in Jesus. It's the only way we can be selfless. Point number two, genuine. We should follow the example of those who are genuine in their service. Look at verse 20 again. Paul says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Friends, do not underestimate the importance of the word genuine in this sentence. It is entirely possible for someone to merely appear to be interested in serving the body of Christ. To be, to just have the appearance of loving Jesus. To only have the appearance of concern for the Great Commission. Philippians chapter 1 verse 15. Paul says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do it out of goodwill. So Paul has this category of people who have insincerity in their ministry. Some people are genuine, but some people are not. And they don't go around waving a flag saying, my ministry for Jesus is insincere. Consider the example of Judas. Judas seemed to care for the poor. John chapter 12. But Judas said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas, I never knew. You're such a good dude. You really love the poor. You think that this is a bad stewardship decision when this ointment was broken and used to wash Jesus. You actually want it to be spent for the poor. Oh, Judas, I like the way you're thinking. And then John commentates. He said, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This theme of pure, sincere, and genuine love for Christ and his church is of great concern to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says to Matthew, uh, excuse me, to Israel in Matthew 15, which is just, just a quote of what the Lord said to Israel in Isaiah, Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Paul picks up on this theme. He runs with it in basically all of his letters to the church. I'm just going to give you some examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. It matters to Paul that the love that's being professed is a genuine love, so much so that he says, I feel like I need to be able to prove how authentic it really is. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he says it simply, let your love be genuine. 
First Timothy chapter one verse five. The aim of our church. Scripture just blows my mind sometimes. I just got to stop and just like gather myself. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, which means there is a kind of professed love that can issue from an insincere heart, from a non-pure heart. But what we do in our gospel ministry is we look for love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Three variations on the same idea, a heart that has, that has been made new by Christ and the gospel. Uh, most of you know that I, I do my best to try to build relationships with uh, gospel leaders, a variety of gospel leaders in our area. Any, any of them that will talk with me, I try to build a relationship with them. <laughs> and I have to tell you that on more than one occasion, I have run into ministers who reek of insincerity. And I can smell it on them a mile away. It's not always the same scenario. Different guys are insincere in their ministry for different reasons. I've known men who are in the ministry uh, not to serve Christ, but to find their own identity. I've known men who are in the ministry to make money because Christian subculture, at least for now in America, can be a real cash cow. I've known in the ministry who are there only because they found it's a good place to find weak-willed women to take advantage of. There's a pastor just right on the other side of town who has this big, shiny ministry, and it seems like it's this really cool and exciting thing going on. But he's only at that church because he was run off from his last church for cheating on his wife and sleeping with a young woman in the church. I know men who are in the ministry just to make a name for themselves rather than make a name for Jesus. To earn their way into God's good graces through ministry, that's their works-based righteousness. I've known men who do it just because they don't have any other choice. You know how it is. You were the star kid in the youth group, and then someone told you you should go to Bible college, and then after that they told you you should go to seminary, and then before you know it, you're pastoring a church, and you may not even be converted. Now, let me confess that, um, and it seems pretty obvious, but I'll say it anyways. I am not 100% genuine in my ministry 100% of the time. I am a sinner, just like you, like every son of Adam. And sometimes, to my shame, I say and do things out of a selfish ambition. And if, if, if any minister, whether they're a Sunday school teacher or a seminary professor or a pastor, if they ever say the opposite of that, you know that you found a liar or they're just naive, they're not very self-aware because we're all sinners and sometimes we all fall into this pattern. So the question you should be asking isn't, is this person that I want to follow in the faith, uh, has this person ever acted out of self-interest? Because the answer to that question will always be yes. Rather, what you should be looking at is this person's pattern of life in ministry. Do they, by and large, seem to be concerned more for Christ than themselves? Or are they just using Christ as a vehicle for their own glory? Friends, we're all going to follow someone's example. That's the way human beings work. When you imitate 
your dad as sons, when you imitate your mom as daughters, you do that because God has built you to follow, to imitate. That's how you develop into a person. We're all going to follow someone. And everyone's example will be to some extent imperfect. But there's a big difference between sometimes sinful and utterly unsincere. So when you find an older sister in the faith or a pastor or a seminary professor or a Sunday school teacher, that you can very clearly see that they genuinely love the Lord, follow after their example. Point number three, proven. We should follow the example of those who are proven in their service. In verse 22, Paul says that Timothy's worth is proven as a servant of the gospel. Look there. I like he says, and you know this, but you know Timothy's proven worth. And he doesn't use the word proven of Epaphroditus, but you get the same idea in verse 25. Look at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. And then a little bit later at the end of the text in verse 30, Paul tells us about Epaphroditus basically being willing to die for the sake of the gospel. Right. So uh, missionaries don't get medals for their for their ministry. Right. But if if you could get a medal for your ministry, Epaphroditus would have gotten like a purple heart or a medal of honor. Because he put it all on the line for Jesus. He counted the cost. So here's another really obvious thing that's so obvious it might not need to be said. But those are the things that we probably need to say the loudest. If you're going to follow someone as an exemplar of the faith. They should have a proven track record of faithfulness. To be clear, not everyone's spiritual resume will have, you know, will be equally robust, but there's a big difference between someone who has a little bit of experience under their belt, who's proven themselves in some capacity. There's a big difference between that person and the person who has in no way proven themselves worthy of you following them. Listen, there are a lot of gospel con men out there. There are a lot of people in churches with overinflated senses of ego who feel like Uh, They are utterly deserving of you following them, even though they've basically done nothing to deserve the honor of you following them. I I, I can think of one man in particular. We were members of the same church together. And this guy, he wanted everyone to follow his lead. But the only thing that he had proven to the saints during his time in the church was that he was arrogant. He was unteachable. And he was divisive. In the end, he proved that he wasn't worthy of people following him because when he didn't get what he wanted, when everyone didn't flock around him, he left the church to go try to build his own kingdom. In contrast to men like that, you have elders in the church. Men that God has, by his grace, put into leadership positions over your souls So that you can follow their example. None of them are perfect. But by and large they are worthy of your. um, Yeah your observance. In in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 3. Peter says that elders are to be examples. 
to the flock. So it should come as no surprise then that elders have to prove themselves, right? So in scripture, there are three lists of qualifications for pastors. Titus, 2 Timothy, and 1 Peter. What the congregation is supposed to do when they look at prospective elders is look at their lives and contrast their lives with these qualifications found in scripture and ask, ask yourself, have these men proven that they have the character and giftings necessary to lead us in the church? The same thing is true of deacons. When the first deacons were appointed in Acts chapter 6, who did the apostles ask for? They asked for seven men of good repute. Good repute. We don't really talk like that. What does that mean? He's saying seven men who have proven themselves, right? Which is why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul talks about deacons, he says, and let them also first be tested before they serve as deacons. So next Sunday, when we vote on Ben Mitchell as a potential deacon at 6th Avenue Community Church, you should know that the elders have not just been like, oh, hey, you seem competent. We're going to make you a deacon. No, we've called you to examine his life. We've given him a chance to prove himself on multiple occasions. And we are confidently recommending him to you because we've examined him together. So whether we're talking about pastors or deacons or missionaries or Sunday school teachers Scripture sets this expectation. We don't follow leaders if they haven't, in some sense, proven themselves. Now, listen, you don't want to carry this too far. You might begin to set up unrealistic expectations for discipleship in the church, right? Like, I'm not going to follow someone unless they're, like, preaching like John Piper. Unless, you know, like, we're still dealing with fallen human beings. And most of us are pretty messed up in a number of different ways. I know all of you very well. We're all broken, okay? We're all weak. We're all sinful. So proven doesn't mean perfect. It just means that even in your imperfections, you have shown yourself to faithfully follow Jesus. So when you're thinking, who should our pastor be or who should I ask to disciple me? Don't just look for the coolest person around or the nicest person in the church or the smartest, or the most talented, or even the most religious-looking person. Look for a person with a track record of genuine love, selfless service, and proven, trustworthy character. Point number four, risky. We should follow the example of those who take risks in their service. Look at verse 30. For, speaking of Epaphroditus, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. <clears throat> so Paul is holding up as an example to the Philippians and to us, to us the risk taking nature of faith. Now there's one caveat we need to make right here at the outset. And it's a big one. Especially if you're young. Young people tend to make this kind of mistake. So if you're young and you're on fire for Christ, yes, great, I love that. Listen to me very carefully. 
the risk that Epaphroditus took for the gospel, it says in the text, was for the work of Christ. It was not a stupid carnal risk. It was not an adrenaline junkie, arrogant, glory-seeking risk. It wasn't like, I'm going to ride my bike off the roof into the swimming pool. I hope all the girls around are watching me kind of risk. Right? Chance is laughing because he's done that. He's probably, yeah, recently. (laughs) Epaphroditus' risk was a gospel risk. Okay, so with that caveat out of the way, let's get to the meat of it. Here's what you need to do. You need to follow the example of people who are taking risks for the gospel. Smart risks, godly risks, risks that are calculated in biblical wisdom, but risks nonetheless. Follow the example of people who have been so humbled by the gospel, who love the church so much, who who are so passionate about the billions of lost souls on the earth, who see Christ as so valuable that they're willing to count everything else as rubbish, even their safety, even their lives, in order to serve Jesus and the bride of Christ. Stop playing it so safe. I hope you hear me, brothers and sisters. Listen, I know that there are like clips of preachers on the internet, and this is kind of their thing. That's what they do. They're always telling people to be radical for their faith all the time. And if you don't sell everything you own and move to Timbuktu, you're not a real Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we very often follow Jesus in a way that is too comfortable. It is too safe. The fact of the matter is, is that the gospel is not safe. The demands that Jesus places on your life when you follow him are risky. If you never get nervous trying to follow the path of obedience, if you never feel butterflies in your stomach, if you never have to like stop and second guess yourself, am I sure I'm doing something right here? If you never have to give yourself the countdown before you do something, you know what I'm talking about? You have to do something hard, you just go do it in three. Three, two, one, go. If you never feel that way in your discipleship with Jesus, you're probably not doing it right. Oh, and please don't come up to me after this sermon with, with your excuse. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular when I say this. I'm just saying it because it's in the Bible. But I can just see it happening. You come up to me and you tell me a story of someone who did something dumb in the name of the gospel, and it was stupid, and it hurt people, and it was a failure. I get it. I know that that happens. That's just a reality. But don't use their stupidity as an excuse for your apathy. as an excuse for your timidity. When was the last time that you did something hard for Jesus? When was the last time that you felt like the gospel compelled you to take a risk? I'm not talking about going out and looking for risks. You don't have to go out and look for hard things to do for Jesus. That's just normal Christian discipleship. When was the last time that you knew the gospel was demanding something really hard of you and you said, yes, Jesus, because I love you and because of what you did for me, I'm going to risk embarrassment. I'm going to risk financial hardship. I'm going to risk my career. I'm going to risk the loss of friendship. I'm going to risk unpopularity. I'm going to risk family turmoil. I'm going to risk my life 
because I know that the gospel demands it. There's this thing called the 1040 window. If you look at a map of the world, the 1040 window is a place that runs from basically like West Africa over a little bit into uh, Southeast Asia. I don't know how to do the coordinate. It's like a big rectangle. And in this rectangle live uh, three and a half billion people who have essentially no access to the gospel. They can be born and they can live and they can die and never hear the name of Jesus. They can never have someone share the gospel with them. They can never read the Bible. They can never go to a church service. They may never encounter a missionary. Three and a half billion people dying and going to hell. Have you even considered the possibility of going to be a missionary? Of taking the gospel to them? Have you even prayed about it? Is this real to you? Is this just a game? I know I'm safe too. I'm here in America with you. I'm in Decatur, Alabama, the most church city in the world. I get that. But not for nothing did we go into the jungle. And I can't be there now, but I can be here with you. I can tell you that the greatest joy that you can have in this Christian life is not to play it safe. It's to follow Jesus into the storm. Some of you may be thinking, you know, Sean, I didn't sign up for this when I became a Christian. You know, I signed up for VBS, which is a trial of its own, you know. I signed up for Sunday morning church service. I signed up for Wednesday night small group and maybe, you know, doing some work in the community Maybe some light evangelism around the office. I didn't sign up to sell everything I own and take my kids and go die in West Africa. Well, friends, I'm sorry that... I don't know who led you to Christ, and I, I don't know why they didn't tell you to count the cost of following Christ, but they should have. They should have. Because Jesus told us himself... If you aren't prepared to leave everything behind, if you aren't prepared, prepared to die in every way, die to yourself, die physically, if you're not prepared to give up everything that you've ever known and loved to count it all as worthless, you're not worthy of being my disciple. And they should have told you. But even if they didn't, I don't really know how you missed it up to this point. Jesus didn't retire in Florida. He died on a cross, hated by everyone. Ashamed, naked, beaten, mocked, suffering the wrath of God for sin. All the apostles were brutally martyred except for John, whose life was only spared after being boiled in oil. You know what happened to Timothy? This is the way he died according to Fox's Book of Martyrs. As the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Katagogion, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely rebuked them for their idolatry. This so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs 
and beat him in such a dreadful manner that he expired of the bruises two days after. He went out there and preached the gospel and they beat him to death. So friends, the application here in point four is, is really simple, but that doesn't mean it's really easy. Take risks for Jesus and follow the example of those who do as well. Point number five, commendable. <clears throat> we should follow the example of those who are commendable in their service. This is just an implication of the text. If someone that you know, love, and trust in the Lord points out another Christian as worthy of your love and trust, you should pay attention to that. So if the person who's discipling you points someone else out and says, hey, you should follow them, you should pay attention to that. That's what Paul is doing here, right? Paul has the love and trust of the Philippians, and he uses it to point to Timothy and to say, if my word means anything to you, you will extend the same love and trust that you've given me to Timothy. So allow me to take a moment to commend someone to you this morning. I want to commend to you my brother, Will Stevenson. I'm not going to cry. In the same way that Paul tells the Philippians that he has no one like Timothy, I'm telling you that I have no one like Will Stevenson. He is a truly selfless, genuine, proven, risk-taking servant of Christ and his church. And his worth to me as a son and as a brother in the gospel is unmatched. And if your love and trust for me means anything at all, you will take my word as truth when I tell you that Will Stevenson is my Timothy. And you should follow his example in Christ. On to the application. Application point number one. I don't know how the note takers are going to do this because I don't, I couldn't, I'm giving you a sentence. Don't be afraid to use yourself and others as an example of the gospel. It's pretty obvious, right? There's a kind of pride that masquerades as humility, which says, oh, I could never hold myself up as an example for someone to follow. Jesus is the only real hero in this story. But friends, remember, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. True humility should be able to recognize that there may be something in you and in other people close to you that's worthy of emulation, even if you're not perfect. Remember, that's what Paul does in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me, right? If Paul said that today in our midst, we might go, Jesus is the only hero of the story. Well, kind of, but he also sets up a lot of underheroes, you know, lowercase h heroes, and that's you. That's me. Maybe not all the time. Maybe not in every way. But there is something in you, if you belong to Jesus, that is worthy of emulation. And if you ever find someone who needs discipleship, don't be proud. Be humble enough to hold yourself up as an example and say, I don't have everything together, but I think I can help you here. Follow me. If you don't, you're never going to accomplish anything. If you never are willing to stand up 
hold yourself up as an example and say, follow me as I follow Christ, you're never going to accomplish anything for the sake of the gospel. Application point number two. Be willing to give up your best players. This comes from verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. You know, Paul could have clung desperately to the comfort of Epaphroditus. He's in chains, he's suffering, he's lonely, he needs all the help he can get. He's trying to basically resource all these churches from prison. And yet he says, I know that you need him more than I do. So I'm going to send him back to you. The same thing is true of Timothy. Paul is willing to send his beloved son to the church at Philippi to see them built up. This is not a, a little thing. In verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like him, which is a pretty good English translation of the Greek. The Greek is a little more astonishing when you understand it, but it's a little bit difficult to grasp conceptually at first in English. What, what it literally says is, I have no one who is same-souled like Timothy. What, what Paul is saying is, listen, I don't know anyone who loves Jesus and the gospel and the church as much as I do other than Timothy. His soul is the same as mine in that regard. That's a hard member of the team to give up. You know what I'm saying? You don't want to give that guy up. Keep that guy. Send the, the, the B student. Keep that guy on the home team. But friends, this is what sacrificial service for the cause of Christ and the welfare of the church will often look, up, look like. You give your best resources to see the kingdom of God built up. If the name of the game was build up my tiny little kingdom, then we would hoard all the resources. We'd keep all the money, we'd keep all the talented men and all the talented women, and we'd only give away the unhealthy members and the money that we had to spare, and I could just run down the list. You know, we'd, we'd plant a church and we'd send the pastor who can't preach very well, and, but that's not the way it works. You very often have to give up the best people in order to see Christ's kingdom built up. Application point number three, honor such men. Have you ever been in a church that makes a really big deal of missionaries? Like a missionary comes through and it's like, everybody be here next Sunday. Like a missionary is going to be preaching and we're going to hear his stories from the field and blah, blah, blah. That's a really good thing. It can be done poorly and it can be done in like an idolatrous fashion and it can be done in such a way as to communicate that, like, missionaries are the real Christians and we're all just kind of, like, hoping, clawing to maybe someday reach their level. But it doesn't have to be that way. It could just be what we see in this morning's text. A church can just honor those who are worthy of honor. Right? Look at verse 29 with me. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, right? So the application here is simple. Whenever you see any Christian who risks it all, who lays it on the line for the gospel, honor them and honor them well. Honor them in the same way that the Bible tells you to honor your parents. Why should you honor your parents? I mean, there's not anything particularly honorable about a man and a woman coming together. The natural biological functions produce 
a baby. What is honorable is that mom and dad spend their whole lives sacrificing so that you can have a good life, right? And you, when you're young, you don't really see that. It's just, you know, your dad's a Nazi because he won't let you and your friends jump on the trampoline, right? But as you get older, you see your parents' selfless service, and, and the more clearly that snaps into focus, the more you look back and you say, I want to honor you, Mom. I want to honor you, Dad. Why? Because you sacrificed for my good. Well, that's what we do for missionaries and for pastors and for anyone else who is constantly serving the body of Christ, which, by the way, you don't need a title to fall into this category. I mean, one of the things that, that I see all the time is just little ways that members of our church are sacrificing their time, talent, and treasure for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And I try to, as much as possible, honor that. That's why sometimes you'll hear me say things from the pulpit about individual members of the church. Maybe as a visitor, you've been like, why is he like sucking up to that person? No, I'm not doing that. I'm trying to honor them. If you sit in on our members' meetings, I'm very often pulling members of the congregation and recognizing the way that they've sacrificed for the good of the church. Why? Because I want to honor them, right? You should make this a practice in your own life. If you happen to see someone selflessly serving the body of Christ, don't wait until tomorrow to honor them. Text them. Send them uh, a singing telegram. You know, Buy them a gift certificate. Do whatever you think would be appropriate to honor them. This morning, a sister brought me a Diet Mountain Dew. I feel very loved. I feel received in the Lord. Yes. So while I'm here, I want to take a moment to honor another person uh, that I don't know always gets the recognition that they deserve. I want to honor my wife, Amber. <laughs> I'm really not going to cry. All right, let's, uh, Luke, let's play the song of the first lady. We're all standing. <clears throat> you know, my wife is pretty hardcore. You can hear it in her singing, right? She sings like she's hardcore. We can hear her all the way out there. But I don't think people understand, like, Amber is quiet, and she is diminutive in many ways. Uh, she's an introvert. But do y'all realize that she took a six-month-old baby into the jungle for the, <laughs> for the sake of the gospel? She followed me? That's a bigger gamble, I think. Into the gospel? She lived there. She... She had a second baby there. She was pregnant, walking around, just belly as swollen as it could be in the jungle. Malaria, dengue fever, hostility, spiritual warfare, sickness constantly. And she did it all for the sake of Christ. When you think about men and women who, who risk their lives for the sake of the gospel, who deserve honor, you probably have in your mind like a Delta Force person. Right, like SEAL Team Six. But man, some of the some of the most risky people for the sake of the gospel look more like my wife than someone who's in some special operations unit. So be on the lookout for those who deserve honor. And when you find someone like that, don't only follow them, but honor them in the way that they deserve. Application point number four care for the sick. Look at verses twenty six and twenty seven. Speaking of Epaphroditus, it says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. 
Friends, just because it's better to depart and be with Christ doesn't mean that sickness and suffering don't matter to us, right? It matters to Jesus. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread, our basic provisions like food, water, clothing, health, right? I don't want us to get into a kind of Gnosticism which says that because we're all just going to leave these bodies one day and, and, and Jesus is going to come back and give us glorified bodies, that none of the suffering we experience in this life really matters. It matters. Paul says, if Epaphroditus would have died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow, right? So you think about what our sister Catherine is going through with her long-term health conditions and, and other members of our church, right? You might be tempted when you look at that to go, ah, well, in the end, it's going to be okay. And that's true. It's profoundly true. It's beautifully true. But do not underestimate the need to care for the sick among us. They are suffering, and we should suffer with them. And if we lose them, it should hurt us to some extent. So care for the sick. And finally, uh, application point number five. Find someone to imitate. Um, early in my Christian walk, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't in a healthy church, and so I, I wasn't discipled, and I didn't know who to follow. And I just ended up reading a bunch of biographies. And I got to tell you, it's always edifying. If you know anything about Ian Murray, he writes for Banner of Truth. He's got a whole series of Christian biographies. I would just encourage you to go online and pick any one of them. And read, read about Amy Carmichael, read, read about Martin Lloyd-Jones, read about any number of brothers and sisters who have come before you and who have followed Christ in this way as proven, genuine, selfless servants. The Lord was gracious to preserve their record of faithfulness to strengthen you in your effort to be faithful. And then on top of that, Consider your pastors, consider your deacons, consider your fellow church members, Amber. Consider Will, right? But even as you do that, remember that we are all human, and we are all sinful, we are all broken. Can I see someone's uh, service guide, please? I didn't bring mine up here. The first song that we sang... Uh, we sang it for a reason. The song is Christ the True and Better Adam, right? And then as you go, you see Christ the True and Better Isaac, Christ the True and Better Moses, Christ the True and Better David. What the author of this hymn is trying to do is, is trying to tell you that as you look at all these characters that God has raised up by his grace for your good throughout church history, you should understand that all of them are worthy of your following. They are worthy of your consideration, but none of them perfectly so. All of them are like a shadow pointing to the reality that is Christ, who is the one who is completely, truly, and fully worthy of your emulation. Whenever I start discipling someone new, I always give them the same talk. I go, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, but when you see me not following Christ, don't do that, right? I say that to the church members, I say that to my wife, I say that to my kids. I'm going to do my best to follow Christ, but I'm going to diverge at some point. I'm going to mess up, I'm going to sin, and when you see that, you just keep following Christ. So that's the note I want to end on for us today, brothers and sisters. Follow imperfect people in your life insofar as they follow Christ.
Because insofar as you follow Christ, you will never be let down. Christ never sinned. He, he has never failed us in any way. Right? He came as the perfectly proven, selfless servant. Right? And he underwent trials and temptations, the likes of which we will never experience. And he suffered things that we will never suffer. And in the end, he was proved righteous when God raised him from the dead. And now he is seated at the Father's right hand. And he's welcoming us home. He's calling us to go be with him. And the only way you can know that you'll get there is if you keep your eyes fixed on him. He won't let you down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need help to follow you. And we know that we have it because of the many gospel promises. So we praise you, Father, that you've called us to your son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have saved us by your blood. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, that you give us the ability even now to imitate Christ. And we give you all the glory forever and ever. Amen.